Good afternoon. Thank you for coming. If some of you want to move forward a bit, a little further up, that would be great. It might make the panelists feel a little bit more a part of the room. Um, but I'm Barbara McGloin. I'd like to welcome you to Consulting on the Cusp of Disruption. And uh, we're, we're pleased to welcome a very distinguished group of panelists. And my role is to introduce the moderator, who is Michelle Trezino, who many of you know as an advisor to the nonprofit management program. So, Michelle? Hi, everyone. Thank you. Good afternoon. So, as Barbara had mentioned, thank you so much for introducing me. I'm Michelle Trezino. I'm advisor for nonprofit management programs here at the School of Professional Studies at Columbia University. And joining us today on our panel are Bill Gold, principal of Ateva Consulting, Diane Spazero, director of career education and professional development at Columbia University School of Professional Studies, Jennifer Shin, founder and chief data scientist of Eight Path Solutions, and Rosemary Bova, president of Bova Enterprises. We're so fortunate to have an extraordinary panel with us today. They're highly revered in their areas of expertise, and we're going to be spending plenty of time after the presentation for a live Q&A. It's evident now more than ever that assessments are being made to identify business models, evaluate them, determine how they've evolved, and how they're being disrupted and continuously challenged. So with that, I'd like, the, I'd like to give our panelists the opportunity to introduce themselves again and really discuss their background and their professional trajectory. Good afternoon, all. Uh, Bill Gold with Tevia Consulting. Um, we are at the intersection of data science, management consulting, and technology. So we bring very innovative products to market. Uh, one of our products is white-labeled by Experian and sold as their own. Uh, we also blend in um, data science consulting services for anywhere in the consumer lifecycle. There's hundreds of predictive models our clients have asked us to train and deploy. I'm Diane Spazero. Uh, I am the director of career education here, but I have a private practice um, called Success Image uh, in which I do a lot of uh, training and development with organizations in transition and work with individual clients in the career process. Hi, my name is Jennifer Shin. I'm actually a Columbia alum. I went here undergrad and graduate school, as well as I've consulted here as well. So I've been a management consultant at Columbia. I've also consulted at some of the big companies like G Capital, Fortress Investment Group, Carlisle Group. Uh, my company focuses on data science, analytics, technology, and we just launched some technology with Box.com. If you guys have heard of Box, similar to Dropbox. And so um, I'm here. I'm really excited to you know, talk about some of the work that I've done. And hopefully you guys walk away feeling like you've learned something from this. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Rosemary Bova, and I would love to see some smiles on people's faces <laughs> because we're looking out at you, and when you have kind of a flat face, you know, it's like, oh, my, or am I getting, getting through to them or what? Bova Enterprises, a.k.a. B, be bold, be brave, and be your best. And um, we specialize in a combination of helping leadership in companies be their most successful. But we do that in a way that brings along all of the employees. So my specialty, in addition to leadership development, is also organization design and structure. And it's using a very specific uh, set of principles that allow for organizations to really 
thrive because right now many organizations, as we'll find out, are in a state of flux. Uh, industries are changing. And employees in today's world sometimes walk around as if they are I hate to say this because I'm really passionate about helping people at work, but sometimes they walk around as if they're zombies, totally disengaged, totally somewhere else. And we need more engagement on the part of people if our world is going to be a better place, if our country is going to thrive again. Thank you. So as an advisor for graduate students, I'm constantly Students come up to me, to the faculty, their academic directors, and they're asking, what do I need to know if I want to go into consulting? What are the required skill sets that I need to enter that space? Um, so let's make that our first point. So at the highest of levels, uh, a good management consultant will help companies make money, save money. Um, but sort of taking it down a level, um, you'll hear uh, people say being problem solvers. I think there's truth to that. Maybe a little cliche, but to me it's about being engaged in your client's success. And at a very visceral level, having your clients feel that you're there for their success. So being able to look at your client, assess their strengths, assess their gaps, uh, and helping them unlock the opportunities that exist in those gaps. And I would absolutely agree with that. Um, I think, too, um, you know, Entrepreneurial creativity is, is a very important skill set for consultants, um, as well as adaptability and empathy and able to really listen to the needs because, you know, you're developing your plan based on the needs of the client. So I think um, one of the distinctions I would make is there's a lot of consulting jobs out there, and they're not all the same, right? So there's going to be subject matter expert consulting, in which case you're basically there to impart your knowledge, your expertise on a, on a subject. There's also management consulting, which is more of uh, you know what was traditionally maybe 10 years ago, where you're going into a corporation, and you're helping the executive team and management team you know, get some results, whichever results those are, whether it's operational or technical. Um, and then, of course, there's also staffing firms that claim they're consulting, but they're actually not, right? So I think that's, that's you know, there's different kinds of consulting, um, depending on what kind of role you're looking at. So that's the first thing I would say. I think in terms of subject, subject matter expertise, that one's pretty straightforward, right? You are expected to be an expert in what you know, and then being able to communicate that. So communication is kind of the key skill there. If you're a management consulting, I think it's a little more of a dynamic sort of role, where you have to be able to not just talk to people who are executives and convey the message as quickly as possible. Really, they don't have time to sit there and listen to a long explanation. You're expected to know what they're really asking and get down to the point and give them the bottom line. But you have to, at the same time, of course, then switch gears and talk to people who are, say, managing the project or working on the project with you and be able to express more in more detail what it is that the management and the executives expect on that project. So it is communication, but it's also understanding what these projects are, what the role is, as well as what the expectations are, and being able to kind of juggle your knowledge across these different, these different areas. In addition, what I would add is I think you need courage, particularly if you're going to um, start your own consulting business. You need to have a... Um, a stomach for uncertainty. You need to know that it's going to be feast and famine. You need to know um, that there are times when you're working very, very hard and you don't get a client for a very long time. 
So you need to have a strength, an inner strength of character that enables you to traverse. We have the Olympics, so I'm thinking of skiing. <laughs> to, 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 to traverse the moguls so that you, you, you um, survive standing up and, and, you know, get to the end of the line, you know, and have your success. I think you also need, if you and I'm talking about those that are interested in working for themselves, because I also know that right now there is, there seems to be difficulty with a lot of people coming out of schools, uh, whether it be undergraduate or graduate, and finding the employment that satisfies them. And I think it's very important that you, as you're in this either career transition or the beginning of your transition, if you're interested in consulting, you need to um, have, a, have a passion for that because you need to really, you don't want to spend your life doing something that you don't value or appreciate or think is contributing to helping others be uh, successful or helping companies be successful. So I think courage and bravery are very important, and it always helps to have a nest egg to be able to tap into if you need to, because most of you are probably going to want to have, you know, families and, uh, or have families, and you, you need to have some security for yourselves. Thank you. Um, I think that one of the largest disruptive forces is definitely technology. So I think that everyone's kind of also curious that um, what do you identify as major disruptive forces and then how do you present that to your clients as to whether they have to adapt to these forces or should they die out? Sure. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really an exciting time to be uh, in a disruptive place, I think. Um, and disruption is nothing new. Uh, there's a reason we drive cars and not horses and buggies. But um, today, the, the pace and how fast the disruption is happening and the breadth uh, of the disruption is really, really unprecedented. So th there's so many business models, so many companies that are, that are just being turned upside down. So a quick show of hands. How many of you have touched a product from the company Kodak? Okay, some, not many. Not that long ago, Kodak was a Dow 30 company, like an icon of this country, where, where Paul Simon wrote a huge hit song about them. And, and recently, they were, they were sold for not a lot of money to Fuji. So for those that embrace the disruption, know how to stay ahead of the curve, um, it, it's a wonderful opportunity. They'll thrive. Those who don't will really struggle. And, uh, you know, I think about the average CEO, you know, they um, really it's seven years for the life of a CEO. And by the time they put their strategy into place, uh, they're moving on. So there's constant disruption. And you're right, they have to stay ahead of the curve. Um, and I always go back to think about the um, Industrial Revolution. Remember the cotton gin? And, you know, 150 years to kind of uh, really grasp going from, um, you know, into uh, the idea of uh, technology there. And, uh, but it's at such a faster pace now. 
And so organizations need to learn how to be more agile, but I think it's about the communication and transparency that's so important in order to keep the motivation. So I'll be honest, because uh, I started my company about six, six plus years ago. Um, if they're not going to pay me, I don't tell them they need to disrupt the industry. I don't tell them they need to disrupt their own company, because if there's no money there, honestly, like there's, it's kind of a waste of my time to sit there and tell them all this stuff and then have them not sign the contract, right? At the end of the day, not everyone wants to be consulted. Not everyone wants to know more. And I think that's one of the things that people don't tell you when you're in school, right? That not everyone wants that knowledge that they impart on you in school to be put on them, right? They didn't sign up for that necessarily. Um, so I think it's really knowing which people who you interact with, like what they're really asking for. Sometimes they're asking for, you know, minor changes, right? And there's nothing wrong with taking that contract because that leads, at least puts your foot in the door for the bigger contracts, right? Um, I think it's knowing which opportunities are the ones that you want to take, which ones are the ones that will lead somewhere, right? Not just thinking about what's directly in front of you, but what could lead to bigger opportunities later on. And being able to, you know, kind of let yourself, you know, try and fail a little bit, right? Like, you won't know for sure. Some of them, you know, they're going to be very disappointing and it won't lead anywhere. But you still learn what it was about that engagement that maybe didn't lead anywhere and learn to avoid it the next time around. So I think it's, you have to be willing to learn from the experiences and just, um, you know, listen to the people who really want disruption because they're, they're going to try different, different ways of getting your attention, say, than the people who aren't, right? They're actually, everyone will say the same things. You've got to kind of look at the actions, not just what people say. Well, I think that's, absolutely critical is pay attention to action right. rather than what people say because we are living in a world where people will say anything to get um, what it is they want um, and I think it's very unfortunate. <clears throat> that being said, um, and I'm going to hit this from two different sides, I'm going to hit it from the side of I do think that certain organizations have a life cycle and it's like life and death, and certain organizations should not be in business or providing services if they're not-for-profits when they're, they have peaked and when the uh, society or the, the community does, no longer needs their services as they've been providing them. I think it's wasteful to try to, you know, uh, go after different types of money for, in, in the sense of not-for-profits, um, when the curve is or the wave is going in a different direction than what your services were. So I know for myself, I have actually closed a not-for-profit organization that I was the executive director of because I felt the board was no longer as engaged, the economy had shifted, the funding sources wanted to fund direct services to children, not fund organizations that worked with children and our work was working with organizations with children. We went out in the black, the board was freed up to go on to other things and uh, you know and I learned that from a Harvard professor who uh, gave a, a fascinating uh, uh, presentation at an organization development national um, uh, meeting and unfortunately he died a few years later, an, you know, an unexpected death, because I think he was right on to something, that there are times when you can, you know, let something die and, and then allow for those that are left behind to reinvent themselves or reinvigorate themselves. So I think that that's an important 
component. I also know that with my own business as a, um, a, a niche, very small, um, I mean, I've always worked with uh, other independent contractors. And I know that the organization development industry, uh, I know so many very talented uh, women and men who have been doing this work for a long time, but since the recession have not been able to pick themselves up on, on, on uh, solid ground. So, I, you know, it's important, I think, to really um, recognize that's, that sometimes we just need to take a breather and, you know, allow the ashes to reignite so that you can once again become creative and um, uh, productive uh, in life. So I do want to add something to what she just said. Um, so I actually was in consulting after undergrad. I left Columbia. Everyone said you pick iBanking consulting. Those are two big jobs, right? Took a consulting role, and then the economy happened. And basically, every um, I saw big companies, a big you know one of the big companies I was recruiting, either rescind offers that they give given to people who I knew. Or straight up just, you know, close their U.S. business and close down divisions, right? They let go of a lot of people. The number of jobs on the Columbia Job Board, if you guys go on, like, the Lion, what is the Lion Share, one of those, you know, job boards Columbia has, it went from 15 pages down to one. And the one page had barely, like, it really didn't have any jobs, right? So, you know, if you're going into consulting thinking, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be set, right? I would say I've learned from the experience of go going to Columbia that, no, that is not true. And when that happens, there's no one there to help you. So, you know, making that assumption is a risk that you do take on um, if you decide to go after this career. The other thing I will say is, you know, I was at G Capital um, by 2014, 2015. I left that consulting gig a week before they divested the entire company and started selling off giant portions of it to other companies. So on the other side of that, you can have a great consulting gig where they're paying you a lot of money um, and be there. And that does not guarantee that the company is not going to fail, right? Um, based on what I was actually consulting on, that was probably the right move for the company, honestly. You know, they were just not able to hire enough consultants to fix some of the problems that they were having. Right? But that's just how it goes sometimes. And you know, I think there's no guarantee that just because you're a consultant somewhere, even if it's a big company, you know, that there's, you know, like you're set for life. Right? So if, I think I've actually started to hear this sort of um, assumption being made by business school students fairly recently. And so I do think that's something that you should take into account if you decide to go down this road. I was just going to jump in there, too. Um, you know, I think it's really important to understand. I mean, and we've heard the gig economy um, and, you know, being able to have that flexibility. Again, for myself, um, I'm actually not um, in my business. I manage my business right now. So I have three people that are working for me, and I'm, I'm doing the strategy of it. But I can't be in the day-to-day -day business, obviously, since I have a full-time position. But um, I think, you know, one thing that always stuck with me is that it's really important to lease out your skills. You own your skills. You want to make – and leasing out your skills and having a backup is always going to keep you employed, right, or employable. And I think that's important to consider. That's a good point. There's two quick things I'd like to expand on. Um, one is about the, uh, the communications uh, the other is about the balance between the long-term disruption uh, as a consultant and the short-term of paying your bills. Yeah. So it, it's great to think about the disruptions. I, I love it. I love to think about where an industry is going to be in one, two, five, ten years um, and building up a practice area and, and managing your skills, your hard and soft, soft skills and practice areas to that. Um, you may choose as that is a strategic direction, 
you may choose to engage clients, prospective clients, as a thought leader in that area. And that's a great dialogue to open up. But, but I agree with what Jennifer is saying, that a lot of your engagements, are, are, at least for me, are shorter. They're three to nine months. They're expected to be something on the magnitude of 20 times return on investment. So, so the suggestion is to, to think about what the short-term tactics are of disruption versus your long-term strategies. Um, the other quick thing was I used to work at a, a technology company called Digital Equipment Corporation. Um, they were, in 10 years, they became the second largest technology company in the world. Um, and when I joined, there was 120,000 employees. And a few years later, there were 20,000. And I remember on my manager's desk, he had a stack this high of internal candidates' resumes. So I learned, and these were smart people. These were people who had masters, PhDs, who did very, very technolo technology-heavy work. So I learned at an early age, and, and I hope you may embrace this, is that your security primarily comes from, one, your network, and two, keeping the skills that you have current. And, and that, to me, is where your security comes from. I really appreciate that all of you addressed that disruption is regular. It's constantly present, existing. And this lens that rather than waiting for the disruption to occur, it's there, but there has to be an evaluation as to what's crisis, is your client in desperation, who your competition is, and those determining factors. So rather than anticipating disruption, knowing it's always there, but really how to assess it in terms of like what needs to be addressed right now versus and traject a plan for your clients. So I'm really happy that that was addressed, that it's always going to be around, but really how, what's your action plan with your clients? I think, I think, though, Michelle, it's important to say that we are in a period of more intense, mm -hmm. <laughs> un, unprecedented destruction of, of industries. So I think, that, I think it's important. Yes, there's always destruction. And, um, but I think that these are very uncertain times. Mm -hmm. The world is in a very uncertain place. People are very, people are frightened. They're scared. Mm -hmm. We tend to think that you can um, just compartmentalize that, and put it, you know, kind of somewhere, and, and think that it's not going to affect you. And the, mm -hmm. the truth of the matter is we are all made of energy, and it seeps in. Mm -hmm. even though we might be unaware that it is having an influence on us. So it becomes very important, um, you know, uh, for those of us who are in the human you know, resources organization development field to, um, to be communicating with, with companies and the individuals in companies around some of these issues because they really, because it, the intensity the the the, um, the rapidity of change, if you, is is so fast, it, mm -hmm. it's so intense right. that there's not much anybody has except themselves. If you really think about it, so I just think I, I just needed to kind of make that statement because I feel strongly about it. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, you know, there's only a Gallup poll I think last year suggested. 15% of people that are actively engaged in their organization. So that's active engagement, really feeling a part of the organization. That's a very small number. 
So that being said, if it's so rapid and it's so intense, how is one to determine what's an opportunity for growth or what's a predictor of stagnation? Okay, well, so all right, so my company has been around for a few years, right? Um, when I started, I started more on the consulting side. Uh, that was kind of the hotter sort of industry prior to the economy crashing. Um, and so I, I went down that road. As I started to get more clients and get more work, one thing I learned is engagements, you know, they tend to not be very long, right? So you put a lot of work in getting new clients, and then the engagements weren't, in my view, long enough for me to be able to sustain it, you know, especially because it's primarily me. Um, one of the things I did was I, I realized when I was at G Capital that I was getting paid a lot. It was great, you know, getting a lot of money. However, it was in Stanford, so it was about a two-and-a-half-hour commu commute each way every day, right? Mm -hmm. Managed to get it down to uh, being able to work from home after I proved that, you know, I could deliver, um, but it was still a lot of it was a lot of work in part because I have to be awake to make that money, right? Every billable hour, I have to be working to make it. And when you're running the business on top of you know uh, you know managing the client, right, managing the team, it was a little bit unusual because they had hired me to manage a different team that they'd hired and wasn't delivering. So I'm managing that team. So that that revenue is not coming to me, right? It's going technically to the other consulting group. Um, and then on top of that, you know, I think between the research that I was doing, because uh, I still do research and publish papers and I also teach, um, I, I realized that for me I, I wanted to switch gears and went into technology. Now, technology is interesting because in the last few years what we've seen is that a lot of corporations have now become open source, which means that their code is available and you have an opportunity to see what's under the hood. This was not the case 10 years ago. 10 years ago, Microsoft would not have given you their code. They would not have let you add on to what they're building. It was just, it was definitely not what was happening. I know this because one of my consulting gigs was to actually build on top of their platform, right? So you have to be a corporation for them to even be considering it. And it's their developers can develop the code, right? Not you. That's really changed now. So, you know, it's been about, I guess, four years since I decided to kind of shift, and the patent that I filed actually took about three and a half years to even get approved, right? So that in and of itself was a long process. Um, I think one of, the thing, one of the things that we've all been kind of saying is that you kind of have to balance it, right? The long-term, short-term. Uh, whether it's your own consulting business or your career, I think the reality is you have to find the middle ground, right? You know, pursue the interests that you have, but if it's too early for it to really, you know, know if that's what you want to, you know, put your, you know, put all of your assets into and really vote time on, you can do it, you know, parallel, right, to maybe having your day job. Don't necessarily just quit your job and go, I'm going to quit my job and have this great career. It's, yeah, it's, you know, I have quit my job and done this. It's really hard. It's a lot of work, and it doesn't really pan out on the timeline you think it will. It turns out there is such a thing as being too early, which I learned the hard way. Um, and so only now have I launched, you know, like years later, you know, some products with other technology companies, right? It took six years of being, you know, in my company to get, be able to do that. So the hard thing, I think, is timing. Right? But I think it, the important really thing for yourself to really take away from this is to go, I have to keep in mind that things I want to do, that maybe don't give up on it because your day job doesn't let you do those things. Right? Mm -hmm. I think it can still pan out in the long run that it will be worthwhile um, for yourself. Um, and, and you should really think about yourself and not think of the job that you have as being sort of the determining factor of you know, everything that you're going to do or pursue out there. So I just want to amplify or repeat on the the topic of timing. Um, as a consultant, as a product person, you can have the right strategy, the right idea, um, and that in itself is, is challenging. It's necessary but not sufficient. So having the right timing behind it um, is probably, in, in my opinion, one of the harder things. Being able to pull that all together, the, the strategy, the market opportunity, um, the, the innovation in the technology, 
um, and the, the ability to, as a consultant, to get your client to buy into that. To me, that that's the thing that really excites me. Um, and, and if you can pull that together, th there's a world of opportunity. Anyone else? No? Okay, we can transition. Oh, I like this question. When assessing, you know, a rapid environment, things are constantly changing, disruption, how are you taking into consideration or how have the expectations of your clients and your customers, how have their expectations transformed this process? I guess part, a big part of that is, is really being plugged into what is success for your client. And the, real, the consultants I've seen that, that are by far the most successful, um, they're not necessarily the ones that had the highest GPAs, although they had good GPAs, but they're really, really, really good at reading the mind of the customer, A, mm -hmm. and B, charting out what a successful trajectory is for that customer. And, and that applies across strategy, across technology, um, across really any and all aspects of consulting. So to me, the, the, the opportunity is as the world around you is changing in financial services with all the innovations that are occurring, my customer, whether it's a, a risk executive, a marketing executive, what is the real impact to that role, to that position? And what's that role and position need to be successful? And, and where does my client get it? And, and perhaps more importantly, how do you communicate the gap to the client? And that's such a individual thing in that people absorb information differently. Mm -hmm. And some need to feel that it's their idea. That's great. That's, that's what a good consultant does. Others are much more direct and you can have the, the direct, candid conversation. So being plugged into that, to me, is exciting and, and a big driver of success. Yeah, and I would absolutely agree. I think having a high EQ <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and personalizing it. it. You know, it has to be personalized. You have to be able to really empathize with what the needs of that individual or that company is. Um, and I also think they want it yesterday you know mm -hmm. I, I don't I, mm -hmm. you can't you have to be on it you just have to be on it all the time Jamon, I, I think it um, it's really kind of interesting for the field of, of that I'm in the organization development um, human resource management aspect of it is a, it's a it's a little different because I think what has happened in the field is that because of the advancements of technology and the internet Many people feel that they know how to manage and how to lead. Mm -hmm. By They feel that they can go um, and read something that somebody wrote. Um, and so their level of information and knowledge is really very much on the surface. It's kind of like on the icing on a cake. There's no cake, though. And... Um, it's very challenging because what, I, what I've noticed in, in and you know, as, as I've prepared for this, this panel, uh, it's been very interesting because I've thought through of my own business and realized, you know, that how I was affected by the disruption um, 
after the, um, after the recession, but also because of the changing in technology and how much, is, how much management information is available online. The problem for me with my clients is that much of that management information, uh, I think, is, is not worth very much. I, you know, <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm perhaps a bit arrogant in my approach to things, um, but I'm also quite passionate and quite uh, grounded in um, in my beliefs about the importance of employees being engaged and management being able to advise employees how to do things, and that doesn't seem to be. People are all talking about leading. And they don't even know what management and leadership are. If you really start to have a conversation with a group of executives, you will get numerous definitions of the role of a manager. Now, this is a real serious problem for us because if you go to an engineering firm or technology firm, there are certain agreed-upon definitions of what something is. An erg is an erg. And the field of management, I was thinking about this, because if you think about how much money gets spent on a, a pharmaceutical firm developing a new product, a new drug, and how much time and energy, billions of dollars go into this, but no one spends that kind of money on really attending to the infrastructure of their own business. We don't do that. So we have a lot of people um, speaking about uh, the importance of business and management and writing books, but we haven't really gotten our hands into the ground to really work with the soil to really understand what our companies really are intended to be and how we can make them better. And so it's really kind of an interesting phenomena given the kind of consulting I do because clients are looking for very fast. Can you tell me? Well, can you give that to me by tomorrow? Okay. You know, but and how much will you charge? Oh, that's so much money. And so they're not, it's kind of like it's, uh, it's almost, it's gotten so transactional, so much almost retail, like going out and buying a cup of coffee versus substantive work that is essential for, um, for companies to really um, thrive and develop products that really do what they say they're going to do. I can agree with that as far as, because we're kind of in the same area mm -hmm. as far as that organizational development. Um, you know, they're, they're putting Band-Aids on things that really need major surgery and are they willing to spend that kind of mm -hmm. money to really invest in in identifying and you know sometimes that's that's the hardest thing is you know the they feel it's kind of finger pointing and, and as, as you pointed out previously um you know it's, it's how you try to communicate that message um and really get them to to, to understand that uh the problem may be partly theirs right mm -hmm. Uh, and taking ownership of that. Yeah, I, actually, I've, I've noticed this. Um, so I do have a day job, um, like 
previously I was a senior principal data scientist at the Nielsen Company and then uh, a director of data science at Comcast and I'll be taking on a new role at NBC Universal soon. Um, and one of the things that I've come across as challenge is actually, uh, you know, being considered senior management is uh, it's, it is the sort of leadership, right? What their definition of leadership is and how they, how they quantify or qualify that. Um, you know, a lot of organizations have a leadership management program that they take for, I don't know. And I might add, like, really, it's time off from your job is really what these things are, okay? Because, you know, there are little exercises that you do. It's definitely not an MBA program. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's like, you know, little, little exercises you do together to think about it. And, you know, my approach is very different. I go with, you know, I talk to my team. I ask them. I engage with them. You know, I ask them for feedback all the time. You know, I, I consider my job being in management to be important because it's, you know, it's more work in a lot of ways because, you know, those are not hours that count really, really toward, you know, my productivity goals, right? Um, but, you know, it's important for my team overall to be productive, right, for me to understand where there are problems and where there aren't. I think the saddest thing I've seen in terms of, you know, sort of all the junk out there about leadership management that people write is that for one thing, you can't get it in a sound bite, okay? You just can't. It's not gonna come into like one little, you know, thing that you say and, and then somehow that encapsulates the entire experience of leadership, right? Because leadership depends on the project. It depends on your group. It depends on the environment. It's gonna vary based on the challenges that you're, you're facing and the challenges that your team has to now overcome, right? Part of that is, I think, um, you know, being able to do the work, but also being able to be in there in the trenches with your team. And this is something that I don't hear people talk about, right? Mm -hmm. My my team, you know, likes working with me because I'm in there with them. I don't tell them like I don't boss them around and tell them a bunch of things to do because that's not leadership. You know, part of what leadership actually is is getting your team to believe in what you're telling them that you're working toward. And I think that's you know what you're not going to get from a lot of these articles. And unfortunately, uh, what I've seen from a lot of big big corporations at this point is. Instead of uh, identifying that leadership is a problem, they will just do a reorganization every year or two. Constantly, constantly. Like this, I'm amazed at how many, how many companies have been doing this the last few years, and no one's talking about it, which I think is astonishing. But this is really what I've seen across the board from all these big corporations. They're just reorging and reorging and reorging, and just switching people around, essentially. Well, and they're reorging without a foundation. They're, they're reorging, there's no substantive foundation. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you're interested in this, I would, there's a body of knowledge called requisite organization, and I would invite you to, you know, get information on that. There's the requisite, requisite organization International Institute. You can look it up online. But that is the work of my mentor, uh, Elliot Jacks, and um, it's substantive, but it requires critical thinking and it requires work. Right. And a lot of people are looking for very fast answers. And you need to, I mean, those of you who are writing papers, I assume people still write papers. Um, when you're writing a paper, you have to think about it. You just don't take, you know, what you read here and, and you know, and what you read here and blend them together. You have to really have the opportunity to reflect and ponder and think about things. Get your mind working. Um, and it's it's really very frustrating in in our field, in my field. Uh, it's, it's, it drives me crazy. <laughs> Obviously, it's driven you crazy too. <laughs> um, I agree with that. I agree with everything uh, the panel's saying. The two things I'd want to add are, amongst the dysfunction you may find in leadership at big companies, um, is a consulting opportunity. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. If if companies had the capacity, the ability to execute on these initiatives that really move the needle, um, they would do it themselves. Often that's why they need a consultant. Two, 
customer expectations change over time. So uh, I joined um, a boutique consulting company in 2001. It was part management consulting and part data science. I was on the leadership team. We were 12 people. In eight years, we grew to 450 people, and now that team is well over 2,000 people. So back in 2000, we, we, we identified there's this big gap between the business and the data scientists. They spoke two different languages, and our, our goal was to bridge that gap. And, and the, the companies didn't have the capability to do that. So that's in part why they were engaging with us. Over time, companies have developed a capability there. So now they engage us to augment what they have, their capabilities, or they engage us for thought leadership, you know, to how can we leverage AI and machine learning. So the point is, as your clients grow, as their needs evolve, your business too will evolve. So I have a funny story about that. Um, literally after we got off the phone, we had a call yesterday about this panel. Mm -hmm. I got off the phone, and so interestingly, um, so I left my role at Comcast. They uh, decided to do a reorg. Well, not exactly reorg. They decided to shift um, some of the things we're working on back to the Philadelphia office, which is the main office, um, and I didn't want to move. Um, and so interestingly, I did consider some roles in, the, in Comcast locally and ended up not getting an offer, which is fine, right? Yesterday, actually, after we got the call, of course, they emailed me and introduced me to one of the CEOs there and said, oh, so we want you for a consulting opportunity because, you know, we'd like you to actually come in and actually work on some of the stuff that they didn't hire me for for maybe a few, few months ago, but now suddenly they need someone to do this. And incidentally, the reason I didn't get that role is because someone else I was on the team with actually went and took that role. And my feeling on that was, well, yeah, he sells it really great, but he actually does no statistics, right? And lo and behold, of course, then they came calling going, oh, hey, we kind of need you because lo and behold, they need statistics, right? They need advanced statistics. So I think that's the other side of the consulting side of it, right, is that, you know, sometimes what's hard about it is that the opportunities are there and they're going to be late about maybe recognizing it. But, you know, I think regardless, it, it's good to, you know, it's good to just keep that door open because you never know, you know, who might come calling. Um, mm -hmm. At least if you had a good conversation and, and just um, leaving it off there, you know, it, it, I definitely had that happen once in a while where, you know, I do get a call and people do ask me. Um, I think IBM is actually a good example. So IBM has an event called uh, World of Watson, which they now call IBM Think. And so I've worked with them a few years, and now they've actually just yesterday emailed me asking me to do podcasts for them on top of they're paying – they have a whole um, budget for basically making a comic strip about data science that is based on some of my work. Um, and, you know, they're also flying me over there for the whole event. And I think I've seen them over the years kind of invest, right? But I think if I went into it with an idea of what I thought it might be or, you know, expecting it to um, be bigger, it just wouldn't have worked because they weren't there yet as a company, right? Those opportunities weren't there for the company as a whole. Whereas now they've kind of over the years, because um, the company's in a place where they have budget for it, you know, they're not getting other people involved. Mm -hmm. So I think the timing in that sense, you know, kind of a theme here, um, you know, it's, it's interesting and at the same time, very difficult, right, to go down the road of consulting for that reason. But even if you do have, like, a day job and, say, an interview, it turns out that you might get a consulting gig out of it. I think it's essential that you have to recognize that you have to start where the client is. You know, you can go in. Um, everyone here is fairly seasoned. Um, you can go in and you know exactly what the problem is. Mm -hmm. But the client does not see that problem client says this is the problem and um, you know this becomes sometimes a dilemma because do you try to address what the 
client sees the problem is, even though you know it's not, it's wrong, it's perhaps wasteful. You know, these are these are the dilemmas that when you're independent, you have to kind of face up to yourself. Am I going to go in and do something that I feel is not right, will not add value, but I need to pay my rent? Right. Or do I stand on my principles? And that's a decision each of us has to make. Mm -hmm. And there's no right and wrong with that. But we each have to, because I think you, th the more aligned you are with what your inner being says, the more, you're going to have a happier life mm -hmm. in the long run. Because if you start violating your own ethics or integrity mm -hmm. or your own moral compass, that will result at some point in time in disease or some kind of crisis that you're going to have to face. I, you know, I'm really quite passionate about this, mm -hmm. and I, I just feel that so many people are not even thinking in this realm. We each are unique we each have a, um, a gift to give to the world. And, and it's important. I mean, people need to be able to sleep at night. I can't tell you how many clients I have who say they're up all night. Right. They're, they're not sleeping. Mm -hmm. They're not, you know, they don't, they haven't, they haven't seen their children grow up. Wow. I mean, I get the chills when I say that. Yeah. I, I, there's, there's something criminal about that. There's something criminal. I mean, you have children because you want to have a family and you want to have a culture. Mm -hmm. And if you're, not, if you're not there to share the wonderful moments of a child's first steps or first words or, or a child, you know, winning at a game in school, there's something very wrong with that. And I think our, our society has gone a little bit too far to that edge where people are not, people are just running as fast as they can. Um, I'm sh I, I would hope all of you know about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, people are running as fast as they can getting nowhere. And it's not about money, it's about satisfaction, mm -hmm. it's about joy in life. It's a good point. I just want to add on one point to that um, in, in the form of an anecdote with one of my mentees. Uh, she has a master's from Columbia, super smart and <clears throat> very, very high um, EQ. Um, the executive clients loved her. Absolutely, she was direct. She communicated clearly and accurately and had this ability to read minds and, and communicate very effectively at the executive level. The flip side of it was at the middle management level, she would get extraordinarily frustrated with some of the noise incompetencies of the middle management. So my guidance to her was, think long and hard. Do you want to be a consultant? It, it, there, it opens a world of opportunity. It teaches you to think strategically, um, to solve complicated problems. But if the noise frustrates you, maybe you would be happier inside a corporation. And she transitioned to a very senior position at Visa and is very happy. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of great things about consulting. The suggestion to you is to think, is that really what you want? Right. Right. 
You definitely yeah. have to have a passion. I mean, you know, I, I think that everyone here can say that how many hours are you putting in <laughs> per week, right? Mm -hmm. But there is that work-life balance, at least, that you can have that time mm -hmm. to be able to take the time needed for, but I, I think you have to be passionate about the work that you do. I think when you love the work you do, you don't feel like it's work. Right. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I can work right through a weekend. I mean, I just, you know, but I'm, I'm so engaged and I'm, there's something about, uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot out there now on the internet about, you know, finding y your, your passion and, um, but it does take work. It really does take work and it's lifelong work. You know, life is about a journey. It's not a, really about an end point. Um, you know, I see so many people, I see, you know, who are really successful according to certain uh, measurements, but they are miserable. <laughs> you know, they're unhappy. They're estranged from family. Is it worth it? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, but, but, you know, you have to have, this is where I think issues like, uh, or aspects like courage come in. You have to really decide what is right for you and then go for it. But you have to also always be open to learning. There's, the world we're in, you know, when I went to school, you, you entered the workforce and you entered a company and you thought you were going to serve your life in that company. You thought you were going to have a 30-year career. Mm -hmm. Well, we know that that has long God. ago disappeared. And so everybody is, everybody is juggling. Everybody is constantly moving. And that's fine as long as you have a, an internal compass or an anchor mm -hmm. that helps you to move and to make these decisions from a place of your own well-being. That's really essential in today's world. Yeah, I think that that's very much true because, you know, you, you know there's all the social media, right? There's all these people who give their opinions and, and what looks cool. Like, yeah, how many of these Instagrams or whatever have how many followers, right? It's the whole influencer thing. Um, you know, I'm actually asked to be on a lot, be on a lot of influencer panels, and, and, you know, that's one of the reasons I've actually does invite me to things. And all the other people who I'm there with, they have like 100,000 or a million followers. I do not. I have like 57. It's something really small. <laughs> and I always go like, well, that's great to be included. I mean, I'll, you know, it's a nice trip. You know, I get to hang out with people who I know from all the years working. But, you know, I, my feeling on it is I'm there because that's great that they have a following. But I'm there because I say the things that their actual audience wants to hear. Right. Then the rest of the panel can, you know, piggyback off of, right? Because they're great at getting the followers, but they're not actually experts in some of these things, right? Mm -hmm. And so they can keep going and going and going. But here's the thing with business executives. They get really tired of hearing the same thing after a while. Like, they hear it, and people are constantly selling it to them. So unless you're going to start adding in something additional, some insight, they're going to stop listening, right? They don't have the time. You know, if there's nothing new there, there's not, there's not much of an audience there. So I do get invited, but I, I, you know, sometimes I think I do think about it. Like, should I have more following? You know, I've definitely gotten that, some notes back and forward. They're like, if you had more following, we kind of invest more money in this. But I don't have time for that for the career that I want for myself. Um, and so I think if you don't, you know, if you don't think about that, you can very easily get swept up into having a career that someone else has dictated for you by offering you these things. Like, oh, you'll be out there and a lot of people will follow you and, you know, you have your brand out there. But the risk of that is... When you're out there and you get all the scrutiny from everyone and you're not sure why you're there, 
eventually it does kind of get to you, right? That pressure, the constant scrutiny. You know, the more people invest in that sort of thing, the more they feel open about criticizing you. That's the other side of it. So I think for me, you know, I am careful about what scrutiny I'm willing to take on and what scrutiny I'm not willing to take on. Um, and so I'm okay with not getting every one of those offers, right? Because that's not why I'm there. Um, and I just, I, I try to be grateful for the opportunities I have to just be out there and speak and, um, you know, try to at least, you know, help my field, help the field that I'm in. In talking about effective leadership um, at different levels, I loved your metaphor of the plant and assessing the soil. Like when there's all this emphasis on the product, the product, the product, but what about what's going on inside and at the bottom and the significance in that kind of assessment? Um, in your experience, is it hard when you have to approach a client and, you know, do you really have to tailor the language in which you're communicating with them? Um, you know, do you, are you trying to go around the issues that maybe are a little sensitive? Do you feel it's more effective to be direct but tailor the message that you're relating to them because you want to maintain a relationship? I think it's, I think it's essential to um, um, build trust with a client. Mm. Um, uh, my work is always about building trust. Mm -hmm. And my clients um, generally, I mean, I might have a um, eight-month assignment with, with a company, but the work is always about building trust. And it's um, whether, whether it's eight months or ten years, because mm -hmm. I've, I've had clients where I work with them throughout their career. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> We think that people don't, can't see through us. <laughs> and uh, people do see through you. People know when you are being authentic and when you're not. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, um, you know, I am able to um, create rapport. It starts with rapport, but then it, it, it's, you know, you're using communication skills. If you're going to be in the consulting field, you need to develop communication skills. Mm -hmm. um, now, on my end, they need to be much more developed than I think maybe in terms of a, being a technical expert, uh, where you're going in with, as the authority uh, about the particular subject. But, but when you're working with the human element, um, you really have to have very developed uh, skills, and that means you constantly have to look at yourself and, um, in my mind, kind of um, disengage your ego to be present to the other person so that you can engage, help them be the best that they can be. So, and, I, you know, I'm, it's, um, I'm very, um, uh, well, you've seen I'm outspoken, but um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm very, um, I'm a truth teller. Um, and, you know, that has cost me at different times, but I felt that I couldn't live with something. Mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, I didn't, I couldn't live with it. And the money has never been the primary driver for me. Certainly, I like nice things, and I want to, you know, have, be comfortable. But, you know, you know, having, you know, twelve zeros in my bank account has never been something that's driven driven me. So you have to really, um, you really have to be able to share. I so I share with my clients. Uh, they know a lot about me. They know a lot about my life. And I know a lot about their lives. They, they'll call me up. I mean, I have clients call me up. I'm having this problem with my daughter or my son. What do you think? Can you talk to her? 
Of course I can talk to her. <laughs> because, only because that is, I am trying to, I'm committed to helping that person be the best they can be so they can be the best they can be in their company. And, um, you know, I think it's a privilege when people share uh, what's really going on with them. Mm -hmm. And I take that privilege very, very seriously. And I would say, you know, I think, and, and Bill hit on it before, um, knowing how your clients like to get information. So depending on, you know, you might have the same core message that you're trying to communicate to several different stakeholders, but you might be communicating that in, in a different way. Maybe to one, you have to be very direct mm -hmm. and, and provide the information. They don't want, they, they just want the facts. Whereas others, they want maybe some empathy. They want so, so having that core message and then knowing how to kind of adjust that depending on the style of the individual. So one of my engagements with American Express, we, we re-engineered the model lifecycle. They, they have thousands of models, hundreds of data scientists, um, and that won the award for the most impactful, um, the chairman's award, the most impactful initiative there at the, for that given year. So my client hired me to write his PowerPoint presentation that he was gonna present to the chairman. And if you imagine, let's say a dozen stakeholders at the table, and each of those stakeholders has a different goal, and they have a different role in the organization, and they have different political stakes in, in the room, so the, the communication of it is so important you know when 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 we train a model we allocate 60% of our time for communication and 40% of the time for finding the signals in the data so so to me developing those communication skills i, I love going out to youtube and, and listening to great speakers like like obama um or I've been listening to tony robbins recently um and i just mentally take notes about how they connect, how elegantly they articulate, mm -hmm. um, and and the other side. I know there's proposals I had on the table that just the wrong phrase in there can cost you business. So mm -hmm. so the stakes are high, the opportunity is big, and and I just embrace evolving the ability to communicate in a way that my clients can embrace. I'll say the other side of that, I think, is for some of you who are, you know, kind of interested in management consulting, maybe you're going, okay, maybe this is not the lifestyle for me. I think there's a real joy for someone who, say, in the corporate environment who gets to work with management consultants, right? That's the other side of it, right? Because if you're feeling like in your position you can't um, do certain things or do certain initiatives, you don't have time, you know, a great management consulting is someone who you can actually trust to do the things that you ask them to do and will follow through on it and mm -hmm. will report to you the issues that come up. That's kind of... You know, that's kind of that's the goal, right? right? It's, it's really to tell you um, what is working, what isn't working, and make sure what you envision is going to actually happen. It's actually going to be implemented. So I think, that, you know, that's, I think that's the other side that I've learned, is that, you know, when I have clients who are very happy, I mean, they're ecstatic in part because they, you know, they don't have the bandwidth to be able to make some of these things that they envision happen in their companies, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so I think it does come, come down to trust, but also communication. And I think it's really about relationships, right? Any business is about relationship and being able to build a relationship. Um, and, you know, learning sort of how the other person speaks, right? How they communicate, what they mean by certain things. And not being afraid to ask for clarification if something isn't clear, right? There's a lot of times when 
someone will make a statement and I'll go, wait, I just want to be clear. Can you maybe explain that a little mm-hmm. bit more? Because I'm not always going to understand everything they mean. Mm-hmm. And when there's a statement being made, like you just, you know, it doesn't hurt to at least ask, like, can you clarify that statement for me rather than assuming and trying to worry about how you might look by asking. This is one of the problems, I think, as a consultant, you can um, ask for clarification. Mm-hmm. As an employee, in a lot of situations, they don't ask for clarification. And this is, this is really one of the issues, because they're not asking. They're, and they're, there's a timidity that has um, overcome um, many people. Um, and I know I speak like in blanket statements. I don't really mean it blanket that way. Mm-hmm. But I just have such concern about what's happening in the American corporation today. Um, and even with small businesses who start up, I mean, I'm always amazed at how people have the the guts to just, you know, decide to buy a franchise or to decide to do something. And then they go ahead and they make it into, they build it into something. That spirit is so, uh, is so infectious. It's so important um, to, you know, who we are. And, um, you know, I heard James Corden recently. Uh, I think he was, I think he was on, um, he, it wasn't on his show. It was, he was being interviewed. It was on, it was on uh, CBS this morning. And he talked about, they, they said something about how wonderful he was and how talented he was. And uh, he said something about uh, being in America and living in America. And he said, you know, one of the things that's so different, and this is a para- paraphrase, one of the things that's so different is that in England, we don't really share very much. Our spirit doesn't show up. But here in America, people are so spirited, and they, their, their spirit does come through. He said, and I just hope it doesn't change. And I said to myself, gosh, it's been changing. <laughs> it was like I was sad. But just to have that, his, his perspective on what makes, you know, one of the things that makes, you know, American citizens from British citizens different is, you know, that energy, that aliveness, that vitality and the willingness to share. When evaluating your clients or industry in general, do you notice that businesses are going in the direction that they're changing, revising their practices or their their behavior for social impact? On paper? (laughs) (laughs) On paper, sure. They all have a CSR thing now, right? Mm -hmm. So everyone has a corporate social responsibility division all of a sudden. I was consulting at a lot of companies when that was not a thing until about I don't know, 2012 probably is when they all started you know, spinning up their division on social responsibility and then hiring someone to you know, take that on. And you know, it's, it's an interesting thing, right? Because uh, at some point it became very you know, in fashion and vogue. And so these corporations, I mean, will hire someone for that job. Now, I, I'd be curious to know in five years how many of those people who took that job wanting to make that change, um, what their feeling is about that job, right? Mm-hmm. Do they really feel that the corporation back the bigger initiatives, or do they really feel that when it came down to making a real change, that there was backing for this, right? It's easy on a superficial level, right, to initially invest in a few things, but at some point they might find, oh, the corporation doesn't want to be associated with that brand suddenly, or they are afraid that now our message is different and it's not in line with the other things that we've been working on, right? So I think I, it's a great idea and it's great to see that, but I think it's difficult, right, because unless we really see um, companies actually coming through on this and, and hear from the people who work in these positions whether or not there actually was backing for it. I don't really know, um, 
you know, how much of it is sort of genuine because it is just so popular. I think if this stuff happened without it being popular, I have more faith in it. Um, but, you know, a lot of corporations, part of it is like, they, you know, if one corporation does it, another corporation also wants to do it. Which, by the way, it's great. That's a great sort of trait in terms of getting consulting work because that is how a lot of consulting work does come about. Like, one company has something and then they want to call someone to, you know, be able to do the same thing. But when it comes to things that are kind of part of that organization, right, not sort of initiative, but other, um, you know, where employees are the ones that are, you know, driving those projects, I think that can be uh, very frustrating if you take on that type of role. I think that it's um, you know there's a there's a difference. People companies like to follow what somebody else is doing. You're absolutely right, and <clears throat> there's difference in terms of of how you work as a consultant uh, in these types of projects. And one is, do you just you know work with them, do the analysis, and give them a, you know loose leaf binders or Google Drive folders with hundreds of steps that they have to go through themselves, or do you just work with them to implement? And that's a very, also a very different type of consulting because that is where you're, in a sense, what you, your thinking and your word is always on, uh, on view because you're with them, hand-holding them to their success. And um, that is a very rewarding kind of consulting. Uh, versus when you hand over, you know, the files. And um, I had a client once, and they were, they were going through a merger. And um, <clears throat> they, um, they were going to hire someone because, you, as you know, with mergers and acquisitions, or maybe you don't know, mergers and acquisitions, it's always the finances and the technologies that are looked at. They never look at the human aspect of the, of the merger and how cultures will clash or, or synthesize. <clears throat> And um, so he said to me, you know, Rosemary, we're putting out this, this uh, uh, bid, um, and, you know, it's going to McKinsey and, you know, a few other very big names. He said, you know, are you interested? I said, you know, I, yes, I am interested. And we went about and we, we did this, uh, we did a, 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 what I thought was a stellar proposal. And my client came back to me. He said, you know, they gave the bid to XYZ. And I said, uh, he said, but you know, you came in the most expensive. I said, really? I couldn't believe it because it wasn't that expensive. You know, it was a couple of thousand, a couple of million dollars. And he said, yeah, you were the most expensive. So we fast forward the you know, project, and I'm still working with a particular individual. And uh, he said, you know, Rosemary, you know what we got for those, the, the, the discounted, we have all these binders. This, is, this goes back a number of years. So we have all these binders of what we're supposed to do and when we should do them. And I said to him, you know, Paul, this is the difference between the way, you know, you and I have worked for all these years, and you thought I was so expensive. Our, our, our pricing included completion. Our pricing, and we were bringing in because, because it was... Um, uh, Australia and the U.S. We were bringing in consultants from Australia to help with the culture and the, and the blending, and it's really it's. Uh, but you know, people go for the name, the the glitter, rather than the substance, and um, that's unfortunate. I mean, it's uh, you know, and and you need to also, if you're go in thinking of entering the world of consulting, 
you need to know who you are and whether you fit in you know, a company that is more about the glitter or more about the substance. And, and that's not to say there is, there's, certain, there's certainly a, a, a continuum, and it's not to say all large consulting firms are, you know, don't have substance. But it's really, you just really need to know who you are and, and what, you, what kind of consulting you want and what kind of value you want to add. And I'm just, you know, as far as the social impact, I think that's true too, as you said, you know, is it on paper or is there substance to it? So, you know, if that's really a, a passion and a value for you in thinking about an organization, then you really need to do that research because there are many organizations out there that are really, uh, you know, a support and have vibrant social uh, impact, mm -hmm. you know, policies. Yeah. I mean, you look at companies like uh, Unilever or General Mills or, you know, Ben & Jerry's, uh, they do exist, you know, but um, that, if that's your need, um, you need to do that research. So my exposure to this is limited other than seeing clients come at it as a sort of checking off the box, almost like a staged event mm -hmm. where um, they show up at some school that needs help the paint is already opened, things are already taped up, and they pass a brush over the wall of paint. Mm -hmm. So it, it strikes me as a company wants to do something, and that the hard part is to align the strategy of the company with the social need at times. And that, to me, would potentially unlock the enthusiasm. I'll also say there's a difference between uh, I think the companies that copy and the companies who do it, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of going with like you know doing the research, right? Because I've, I've seen um, some companies that do have that interest and they do allow, and, and you know the real test is does the company let you let you pick or is it like they decide for you, right? That that's part of it I think. And also you know so I, I was at a company where they you know basically just there to basically you know be competitive and have that photo on the website where everyone's wearing the t-shirts for the employees and. You know, it's very much, uh, that's what it was all about, right? You just, it was never put out there as a way of really helping people. It was just what we do as employees for the company. Um, so I think that in and of itself kind of tells you, you know, what in terms of culture, right? What kind of company you're working for and how much they do care about it. But I have seen companies where they do actually support, um, you know, some of these initiatives. And sometimes it's not, by the way, on a big, large scale. It can be something as, like, if you care about something and you say, can I have some free time to go work on that? Or, you know, can I work around my schedule for something? If they're supportive of that, you know, that, I think, it speaks a lot more to me about what the company culture is than whether or not they have a picture on some website that shows everyone wore the T-shirts and painted a wall, right? You know, if you look at the history of, of corporations, certainly they were, they were about... Um, you know, building products or providing services, making money for their owners. Um, but they were also about contributing to the community. I mean, that if you go back and really, you know, look at the history, um, there really is an aspect of, you know, you're, you're drawing your talent from a community and you want to be engaged in the community. And there are a number of corporations that really have 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 been have stellar records about engagement in their communities. Um, unfortunately, some of the very large ones, when they have had to deal with the disruption mm -hmm. and have left the community, mm -hmm. the community is devastated. 
because they were such an important part of the community in terms of being the major employer of the community, but also uh, using the, um, uh, the services and products of smaller businesses. So you, there's really, we, we sometimes, we, we are really focused primarily right now on stakeholders, and that is just, um, uh, or not stakeholders, investors. And, um, you know, it's unfortunate. And uh, it, it wasn't always that way, but it's, it's, uh, it's something to really rethink. I think we need to rethink that. This is all wonderful insight. Thank you all. Um, we're going to open it to you now. So feel free to raise your hand, stand, ask a question, and then I'll definitely announce it to everyone in the room along with the panelists as well. Hi. Yes. Yes, well, um, thank you for being here. Uh, I have a question. I feel that in most cases there's always going to be a friction in doing an enclosure project. Do you guys consider that doing a... Thank you. A project for a small firm or a medium firm or a large firm is easier in terms of friction? Mm -hmm. Well, bigger firms, they're, you know, bigger firms get in a lot of times because they have to know someone that's an executive or someone higher up in the management. So employees are less likely to speak up against them, right? They're, you know, they get the better, I mean, literally, they get the bigger offices compared to smaller companies, right? Like mm -hmm. I uh, was at Fortress Investment Group, and, you know, Deloitte had a much bigger room than us, right? They had a much bigger space. Um, they probably knew someone, right? Um, and so if you're a smaller firm, they're, you'll have less, uh, you know, people, people will be less, I guess they, they'll hold their tongue last, right, when they, when they speak their mind. However, on the other side of that, though, is when you're a smaller firm, you do have more of an opportunity to actually get to know those employees, right? You're not on the side of management as tightly, right, as when you are in the bigger firms, right? There's less politics in that sense. So you do have an opportunity, actually, to, you know, get to know people at the company more and kind of add value that way. Um, so I think it's always kind of like a give or take in that sense, right? The more aligned, you know, the company is with the management, Right, the more other employees will be suspicious of those consultants, say, right? Um, so I think you will have friction, but you know, regardless of whichever project you take on, I mean, if you're even at Deloitte, the friction will be there. It'll just be higher up. It'll be like you know, the engagement manager for that project that might have friction with the other you know, senior vice presidents or something like that, right? So you as a consultant may not feel it, but your, your company as a whole may feel it, right? So there, like, you, there's no way to get, escape that to some extent, but I think in corporate America in general, there's no way to escape that. I see friction day to day across just divisions and VPs, and you know, mm. uh, I think that's just kind of how how it goes. I think the more important thing is to figure out ways to navigate it, right? Mm -hmm. Find, finding um, tactful ways to maybe sidestep a question or tactful ways to, um, you know, offer some criticism without it being taken as being a criticism, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if you're employed by a large consulting firm you can't lose sight of the fact that you are an employee of that firm. Mm -hmm. And you have to take your direction from your management. Mm -hmm. And um, so as a, as a smaller firm, if I just use your example of your team, they'll tell you what they want and the, the, you're asking them how things are going. You, there's, a, there's a level of, of intimacy, of realness, that occurs when you're in a smaller firm and you're all engaged. With some of the bigger firms, it, I, I empathize with some of the employees, the, you know, because they they want to learn and they want and they want to you know they want to go up the hierarchy, but they they can't they may not feel that they can speak their voice their their truth to the client without getting an okay from their boss. 
to do that. So it's really, it's, these are, these are uh, important issues and, and the uh, being able to communicate tactfully and to, to navigate is essential for success. Actually, I will say, so I actually know a CEO, uh, he's now a CEO of a company, and um, he actually did tell me the story that when he was a, a Accenture and he was like an analyst, at some point, he, they were on a project and he had this great idea. And so, um, you know, he tried to bring it up and, and bring it to the higher-ups. At some point, one of the, you know, the, um, I think one of the principals, you know, had a meeting with him. And then, of course, his manager found out, and it did not go over well. Um, years later, he's on a plane and, of course, runs into that guy. And they talk about how Accenture lost that contract eventually when it did come up that the client did want that service, right? But, of course, you know, when he was an analyst, no one listened to him. And, you know, he got, you know, he kind of got in trouble, right, with his manager. Mm -hmm. So I think the reality is, like, you know, there's a lot of impressions that people have about what these firms are like. And, and, and to some extent, even, even, you know, these big consulting firms, there's some branding happening there, right? There's some marketing they're doing about how inclusive they are and how great these teams are and how you get to make a change. Change within reason, right? Within reasons and bounds they dictated, right? That's just how any corporation is going to be run, any big company is going to be, right? So it's not just, um, it, you know, you're not kind of free to just do just to be smart in some sense, right? Um, even if you are in a consulting firm, there's certain rules that they're, you know, each company is going to have about who you can tell and you know, when it's appropriate, say, to bring something up. Um, I think in, you know, I've, I've met enough consultants who've worked at these companies, like McKinsey and Accenture, you know, BCG, and I think the people who are really um, more driven you know, they will acknowledge that, right? They'll, they'll acknowledge, like, it was great for what it was, you know, gave me a good opportunity, but it was by no means, like, you know, they didn't make their careers, and they didn't make, you know, it wasn't, like, this amazing experience where it was just enjoyable because they got to be smart, right? You do have to put up with some of the politics, um, but I think you just have to think long-term about where you want to go and, you know, whether, you know, you're going to develop the skills you want from having, you know, those job opportunities, right? Consulting puts you in a lot of uncomfortable situations, but you also have an opportunity to learn, right? You learn how to talk to people. You learn how to find opportunities. You know, you learn how to navigate some of that, you know, the uh, politics of it, which I think when you're just an employee, sometimes you don't get to do that, right? Because you're kind of you're restricted by your, your department or your manager. So you do get more of that, but you will be uncomfortable. Like, I mean, I don't know. Maybe there's some people who had an easy time with it. I was uncomfortable through a lot of it initially, right? You have to kind of go in there and figure it out and learn. But um, if that's what you want to do, like you want to be caught up really quick and learn these things, then it is a good environment for that. Just a, a quick anecdote. Um, when I was first becoming a management consultant, the partner I was working for, our mantra was client output that was client ready. So I'd prepare the presentation for the executives, and, and my goal was to be client ready out of the gate. And every time he'd come back to me and say, fix this, this, and this. And the harder I would work, the more he would scrutinize. And it dawned on me, it, what was critical for him was to have his th thumbprint on the presentation. Mm -hmm. And when I realized that, I would intentionally make it 99% client ready. He'd say, fix this, oh yeah. And, and things flowed through easily. So to me, friction is not necessarily a function of the size. It's the partner you're connected with. It's is the client consulting friendly or not? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's the political situation mm -hmm. at the client, mostly, but internally, mm -hmm. that, that you might be landing into. Fortunately, with data sciences, your outputs are objective. But then again, if you produce objective results that are internally controversial, 
how you communicate that, how that works its way up the chain. We identified an opportunity for potentially $2 billion in incremental revenue. And you think on the surface, wow, that's great. But the teams that, some of the teams didn't take that well because they felt it was infringing on what they should be doing. And I like to think of it, you know, again, thinking communication, just um, a kind of cultural framework of where the organization currently is in their life cycle. You know, so like you have a, a hydocracy of, which is really that startup culture that's very market driven, that it's very adaptable. They don't want to see this hardcore contract. They want to have flexibility with regards to that. And then as they grow, you go into kind of that clan culture. Everybody supports the, you know, the founder. And, you know, there's this family kind of rah-rah. And, and how are you going to approach that contract differently from the idocracy? And then you get into a very hierarchical organization that has a lot of structure and they want a lot more process. So the way you're going to present to them is going to be quite different. You know, so I, I think you have to kind of think of the life cycle of who it is that you're pitching to. Hello. Um, my name is Arnan. Thank you for, for the panel. I actually have a question um, from your entrepreneurship part of the conversation. Um, when you uh, run consultancy business in a big company, you do have a marketing and sales department that source you the leads and, you know, you just do your intellectual part of the job and everything is great. But if you start your own consultancy and uh, sometimes it's just you and your friend and somebody else, how would you um, source those leads? How would you look for opportunities uh, to, to make the things going? Yeah, that's, that's the question. So the, part of the answer is going to depend on the type of consulting you're going after. Uh, for me, it's almost exclusively relationship-based. So uh, I was fortunate to have started um, at a consulting company that was, was a bunch of ex-McKenzie folks who were left side of the brain, so they blended in the data sciences very early. And they're really, the people who worked there were rock stars. And I was lucky to be part of that, and they went off to do some very interesting things. So that, um, clients along the way, um, LinkedIn's a big part of the strategy. Um, the, a lot of my clients will, will ping me there. Um, thought leadership, find a topic that you're passionate about, interested in it, become a thought leader, share, publish, things of that nature. And I think having a really great board of advisors is is really very important to, at, at the start. You know, really getting those people together that are there to support you and provide you with insights on areas that you don't have that expertise mm -hmm. and acknowledging that you don't have the expertise mm -hmm. in everything. Yeah, so I did a lot of networking. And trust me, I did not like doing a lot of networking. But, you know, that's what really, you know, no one's calling. You go out. You go to the events. Um, I registered with the government, so I'm a minority and women-owned business. So I would go to a lot of New York City events. I go to a lot of New York State events. I used to go to federal events. I used to um, – I did a lot of um, that sort of work, you know. And I think you just have to go out there and meet people, right? Because part of it is finding out why something didn't go through or maybe why that proposal isn't going through. And there's going to be a lot of – proposals that don't go through. And a lot of it's not because your proposal wasn't good. It's that the company wasn't ready yet to maybe invest in that. Or maybe they identified a different problem along the way that took priority. 
Um, so because those things kind of come up, you know, inherently with corporations or with companies in general, you have to do so much more work, right, than meeting just the bottom, you know, like base minimum, right? Meaning you always have to have something going on in the back, right? So even if you have a potential client, don't invest all of your time and energy on that one potential client. Try to get eight more potential clients at the same time, right? Because, you know, those deals aren't always going to go through and for, you know, reasons outside of your control, right? Nothing you could have done would have made that contract go through if it's from the client's end, right? So I think uh, it's just, you know, putting yourself out there and networking as much as you can and then also also getting feedback as much as you can, right? Learn from why maybe something didn't go through on the client's end, right? So they'll often say things like, oh, well, we put this together and there was someone interested, but say, um, you know, the budget, you know, they're redoing the budget this year, right? And then that's a good opportunity to go, okay, can you maybe, you know, ping me once that's, once that's solid and then maybe we can discuss this and continue the conversation, right? Um, you want to get information back from them, right? Because oftentimes when people deliver bad news, they don't think about maybe how they can help you thereafter, so it's kind of on you to then try to keep the conversation going, right? Um, and holding on to business cards. I've had a lot of people who contacted me like years later with things. I just had Department of Sanitation just contact me like a month ago. Um, and that was a contract from like years ago. And they called. I'm kind of amazed that people do call. Like the, you know, but really the relationship thing does matter, right? Because if you did leave a good impression, mm-hmm. maybe they just don't have work for you right now. It doesn't mean that they won't try and you know, think of you later on when there is work to give you. Um, so I think that you know, networking and just you know, putting it out there and, and keeping those relationships going. I agree. And I think that um, if you have a few friends and you want to start a business, you need to really develop a, a strategic marketing plan. You have, to, you have to really do that. I never did that. I was fortunate early on um, to have everything come through relationships. Every, you know, I, mean, I never really had to market. I, I would go maybe once or twice a year to a conference, and I'd come back with you know, a client or two. But I think that it, you know, learning, how to, uh, learning how to market effectively in today's environment is really essential. And um, and you and it's different than it was, and um, even though much of it is um, driven by the internet and LinkedIn and you know Facebook business pages and all of that, when it comes down to a person signing on the contract, they have to have a good feeling about you. Mm-hmm. They they have to have a relationship and rapport, and so um, that becomes. Um, Becomes really important, and you should be spending time every week, you know, a certain amount of hours every week, and just put it on your calendar. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, put it on this time is blocked for right. marketing. Uh, and what am I going to do? You know, are you going to, you know, call people? Or, you know, you'll, you'll, there are a lot of books out there that can be very helpful in that, and um, it's better that you learn it early than when you're kind of learning it, like, for me, later in life. You know, it's like kind of, it's much easier to, you know, when you're starting out. I will recommend SCORE, which is a free service that you can get here in New York City. And they're retired executives that will help you to put together a real business plan. Um, so you want to take advantage of those kinds of services. That's funny. So one of the first uh, sort of thought leadership stuff I did was actually writing for SCORE. So there's, I think, a bunch <laughs> of blog posts on SCORE's website, actually, that I talked, where I talk about business and entrepreneurship and all of this. Um, yeah, so they're actually really great. You know, I've, I've, uh, I think 
you know, that's a good opportunity to actually engage again, because they're going to, I think, I don't know if this is still the case, but they would match you up with, say, a former entrepreneur, you know, someone who has experience. And again, relationship, right? You can talk to that person and not just read a bunch of articles, but engage and ask your questions. So any sort of program like that, I think, is really beneficial. I will say also, like, um, so social media, in terms of a return, and this is my data science side, right? Uh, the return is actually not very good, right? So in terms of business, if you're doing a lot of social media, you should be cautious because the actual return on investment is very small. Now, it will get you great branding. It will get your brand out there. How many of them, how many people are actually going to make decisions about a business purchase off of social media? Not many, right? So um, while it's great for branding purposes, you know, in terms of the return, if you're just you and your friend, you know, I would be cautious about what avenues you follow mm -hmm. in terms of marketing. Like, you do have to be more... Uh, I think, you know, you really have to do your research about what's going to work and what's worthwhile in terms of time. Time is really the issue, right? If we all had time to do all of it, we'd do all of it. It'd be, you know, simple. But, you know, when you're running the business, there's so much of these unexpected things that come up, so many things that run late, run over, um, and it's really hard to, like, have this 9 to 5 schedule where you can block time off and just have it be that, right? Like, for, you know, one week there might be a proposal that takes up your entire week, right? And then next week it might just be, you know, like, quieter. So, you know, you have to be a little bit more, um, I think, flexible, right, in terms of how you allot the time for these things, but also be able to recognize when it's failing, right? If you're, you know, spending a lot of time on social media and you're not getting any leads, you know, that's really not a good use of your time, right? Because, uh, you know, ultimately you have to think about how you're going to keep your business operational and have that cash flow coming in. The, the thing I'd like to add is I have many friends who run professional services organizations. I've never, ever heard anyone ever say, I've got the right balance of work I'm executing on and a pipeline. Either there's too much work, I can't deliver it all, I have to turn some down, or there's not enough um, um, keenly focused on getting more work. So. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And there's a wonderful book, um, perhaps one of the best business books I've read, called E-Myth, uh, Entrepreneur's Myth. And it essentially talks about three personas, the entrepreneur, the manager, and the technician, and how they're all fundamentally in conflict with each other. Mm -hmm. and, and being able to navigate those, balance those, is critical to your success. Oh, yeah, that's definitely true. Like, salespeople can say things about your product that, uh, like, the developer would never say. So you talk to the developer, and they're going to tell you all the technical things. And they, if you ask them a blank question about, does this thing work, they're not going to really lie to you, right? Because that's kind of putting their credibility on the line. Mm -hmm. a, sales, a salesperson can say, I don't know. A developer cannot say that. It's his job to know what they've developed, right? So there's fundamentally in that, in, in that interaction alone where you have um, sort of a, a little bit of a, a problem, right? If you send a developer out there to sell, they are going to be honest about things because it's their credibility, right? And, of course, then the sale might not happen. And I say this because sometimes businesses ask questions that actually aren't relevant for their actual purchasing decision-making, but they'll still ask, right? So that feature may not actually be essential for what they need, but they might still ask you for it anyway, right? A salesperson will sidestep that question and go, I'll, you know, I can talk to my, you know, my team. And even that extra step, they, you know, a lot of businesses go, oh, yeah, no, it's okay. It's not that important. 
right? So now you basically start up the entire, you know, that problem because it really wasn't a problem, mm. right? Because businesses will often ask things that maybe aren't so relevant to the actual contract. That's so smart. <laughs> That's brilliant. I think we have time for one more question. Hi, uh, my name is David, and I'm an enterprise risk management student. Oh, well, uh, enterprise risk management is only uh, normally consulting for a financial firm as they are uh, required to do it. S but the thing I find it frustrating is that I think this is an uh, add value program. Cause, uh, however, most of the financial firms doing that because the regulation. So they were ha doing this with a tick box, checkbox attitude. So they, you, you can persuade them to do this, but actually they, they just want quick answer. Oh, <laughs> what do I do? You find them a bunch of files and they do it. But it doesn't turn out great because they're not doing proactively. So when the program fell, who, they do them? who do they blame? Us. <laughs> so you get a bad reputation. How, how do you deal with that? A second question is that like, you raise an interesting point that sometimes the client wants to uh, think that's a problem, where you find that that is actually a problem. So do you tell the truth, say no to the client in the face, or you just do what he said? And so do you do that um, consistently? Like you only say the truth, or like you only do what I, like how do you balance that? Well, I'm probably, um, <laughs> you know, the, that uh, nursery rhyme, the cheese stands alone. I have turned down a lot of, a lot of work because I couldn't work with what I thought the client wanted and how they wanted it. And I just, it was more important for me to be true to myself, my own beliefs. So I, I've turned down lots of work that way. I think, um, but you know, everyone has to, everyone has their own moral compass and you have to do that for what's right for you. You know, so I have a great deal of abundance in my life, um, but it may not um, it may not be the same amount of um, uh, you know in dollars and cents. It may be very different than you know everybody here on the panel or somebody else. Uh, but I you know I just you know feel very comfortable with my life with myself and. Um, you know, continue to uh, move forward with the beliefs that I have that I think are on the cutting edge of what corporations need today. The image just flashed in my mind of a, a very nurturing feminine figure. It, it's, you know, it's, we haven't talked about the feminine on the panel. Mm. I meant to talk about that earlier, but we haven't. But that, when you think about, when you think about the disruption in American business, one of the disruptions, and it's a major disruption, has to do with women becoming more comfortable with their voices. And women, because of the, the, the fact that they are mothers, mm -hmm. naturally have to, have to manage their children and relationship, and they can manage very, very different children who, you know, from the same parents, you can have, you know, five kids that are, you know, dramatically different. The, so the feminine is, um, is, a, is about learning how to manage those relationships. And um, as I was talking to you, that image came to me in, in terms of what I feel my purpose on life is, is to really help organizations be most effective. 
I can only do that by, um, by being true to myself, because if I violate my own integrity, my own moral compass, then I am not going to be able to make the contribution I want to do. So it's, a, it's, it's been a constant inner, outer struggle for Rosemary mm -hmm. to, to be true to herself. And there have been prices to pay for that, um, but there's been joy as well. So, so. I've, been, I've delivered CCAR and Basel models for a $12 billion small business portfolio. Um, two suggestions. One is have a very, very clear sense of what your successful outcome is. Um, if you don't know what that successful outcome is, that has to be your top priority um, to get to that clarity. And, and talk to your managers, talk to your leaders about what that is and get them on board. Um, part of consulting is, is being crystal clear on that, and part of it is covering yourself to get to that end. So as you go through that modeling process, know that clarity, get to that clarity, and make sure everything you document, everything you work on is with that end in mind. You know, my view on the regulatory process, I don't know how valuable the interactions with the regulators are. There's some. I think the real value is forcing companies to do the internal review and documentation. That drives to clarity, and that's good. Yeah, so I actually, so one of the things I did at G Capital was the CCAR models. Um, I did, I trust tested about $12 billion of their energy portfolio. So that's actually uh, the, the work that I've done. Um, so when I was there, though, the requirements were actually pretty vague. And it actually caused a lot of frustration among the business folks because they're used to check boxes. But if you actually read the document from the Federal Reserve, it's actually very, very general, right? And any researcher understands what the, you know, what the regulation is asking for, but generally business people did not because there's no check boxes. You just have to have a model that works, right? Which is a very uh, vague concept to people who have not done research, right? If you've done um, any sort of statistical analysis type of course, right, you would be more familiar with it. But most business people have not done that type of work. Um, I think in, term, in general, I think with that type of work where there's regulation, of course, there's a risk. I got offered a lot of CCAR-related jobs, uh, you know, a lot of you know, higher-up positions at some of these big financial companies. I chose not to take those roles because ultimately that wasn't really where I wanted to be. But also because there is that risk with regulation where, of course, when laws change, your job will change, right? So that is inherently a risk. I think the way that – so I have people on my team who moved on and got other positions, VP positions at other corporations doing this type of work. Some of their experiences have not been good, um, which I'm not going to share with you because it might scare you from the field. And, it's in, and you know, they, they bounce back, right? They went to another company. It's fine, right? Like, they are still doing that type of work. Um, but I think in terms of the way you want to think about it is learn the skills that you can then leverage for other opportunities that will help you in the future, right? So meaning documentation is something that's always good to know how to do, right? Understanding technical details, again, another good thing to be able to do. Or being able to communicate that technical information about a model, right? And then, of course, if you're modeling something, if you can find a better way to model, right, or you can make an improvement on the model, right, again, those are good metrics that you can offer to any company that does any type of modeling. It's not just restricted to just CCAR regulations, right? So if you think about the actual work you're doing, right, what you're actually building, right, what you're developing, and focus less on the day-to-day -day operational parts of the job, right, I think that's one way that you can actually um, still have good experience to be able to, you know, move on to other opportunities, um, not just stay kind of stuck there. 
I think the other thing to think about is operationally, right? There's also opportunity there, right? Even if they have these models, they have to keep running them, right? So they're going to need someone to actually be able to run the models, that, you know, in and of itself, right? So there's the operational side that you can also do. In terms of delivering sort of like, how do I deliver a problem? Well, I always tell people, don't deliver the problem unless you've figured out some solutions, right? Like, don't just say, oh, yeah, that's a problem, period, end. There goes your consulting gig, right? No, you go, here are some problems. Here's what I recommend we can do to resolve it. And generally, with something as technical, like, like these big modeling issues, um, you know, one of the things is, of course, there's no clear solution because every business has different budgets, right? They have different bandwidth. So I typically go with, okay, here's sort of the range of what we could do and sort of the trade-off of them, right? You have a conversation about it instead of just delivering the news and just, you know, being the bearer of bad news, right? People don't really need to hire someone to do that. What they do need are consultants that are going to explain to them why it's a problem, what they can do about it, what it's going to cost, how much time it's going to take, you know, why they might want to do it, what the risks are of not doing it, right? And that's something where they will pay you for that time, you know, and you can actually leverage your expertise. I'll say I, I actually transitioned to out of risk management many years ago, um, but in that um, I created a consultant. Uh, I, I had three clients that I consulted for from my previous experience, um, and I was able to leverage things like doing their litigation management, being able to assess their um, their reserves of loss and coming up with a strategy. So I, I was able to develop a, a private practice there as well. Um, I will say that I ended up walking away from uh, the Archdiocese of Newark when they were asking me to assess the molestation quick, uh, cases and, and costs of loss. Um, it was really against my moral, and I had to just walk away. We have time for one more question, so we could take it. Yeah. So, uh, my question is about the models, actually. Uh, the Kodak uh, case study is really interesting, and many people have already studied about it. But my question here being, uh, if a company is has a product-specific model, like Kodak was into cameras, it was just doing cameras. And when the disruption came in, it was not able to cope up, and probably it failed. But I want to know your feedback on what Kodak would have done different in a way to survive the competition. And if it would choose a horizontal model, like going into platforms, would platform not pose a risk of falling down totally? Because when you are into platforms, and if one of your products or, or services fail, the whole company suffers, and the reputation is online. So I want to know what is the risk associated with horizontal models and vertical models? Well, so I think there's benefit, right? So when you, when you pick certain verticals, uh, it's a little bit easier to market, right? And it's, a clear, uh, it's clearer to sell, right? You can sell something, it's something understandable. Um, and that's why a lot of times when you see technology being sold, you see use cases, right? It's easy to people wrap their mind around that technology once there's a use case around it. Technology is kind of uh, great that way in that they can fulfill many needs across, right? Um, in terms of what they can deliver, right, across many use cases. Of course, with technology, there's also the risk of things like um, the amount of upkeep, the amount of support. I do know of a startup that was in the photo space. They were one of the hot top ten products and failed, like, very quickly because they could not pay their Amazon bill. They underestimated the cost of customer support. They underestimated the cost of when you price something in such a way that you're giving everyone, like, unlimited service for five bucks, um, you're still having to pay Amazon. They're not charging you unlimited service for five bucks, right? So that pricing is sort of one of those, again, these business things that just doesn't go away. 
how you price, the margin, how much profit you're actually generating based on the revenue you're getting, right? Um, and then just really, I think at the end of the day, it's almost very boring in a way, right? Financially, you have to be sustainable. Financially, for any risk you take, you can't take more risk than your, you know, your cost can cover, right? That's kind of the whole point of the whole C-card thing, right? Make sure your cost can be covered with you know, um, what you're spending and, and everything else, right? I think that kind of doesn't go away. Um, I think in some sense with businesses that kind of are big, you know, they're gigantic, they you know, are the big brand, um, it kind of comes down to what their perspective is, right? What the leadership's perspective is. You're either going to stand there and go, we are the leaders and we're going to dictate these things and we don't think we have to change. And sometimes that works, right? A lot of competition is eliminated by big companies buying out little startups and basically eliminate competition. They do purely eliminate competition, right? They don't care if consumers could get better products. No, they just don't want to deal with it. And many companies do this, right? Um, but I think the you know, innovative companies, what they do that's different is that they don't look for why they shouldn't have to change. They look for new opportunities to grow and make more money, be more popular, be more essential to the consumer, right? I think that, you know, that perspective is kind of what differentiates. It's not about these little things that, you know, one manager does, doesn't do, right? It's not about those small things. It's sort of about, you know, really where they see themselves, right, and the value and how strongly they believe in the value that they can bring, right, um, to the consumer. I think the, um, in the case of Kodak, it's very, very rare that, that a highly innovative CEO scales out a company too. The Bill Gates, the Larry Ellisons, the Elon Musks of the world are very unusual. So to have uh, an innovation that resonates in the market and really catches fire, and then to scale that out, it's generally two different types of executives. So then the one who's, who doesn't want to disrupt the cash cow loses sight, I think, of the next wave. And what the strategy a big company brings to bear to manage that, um, some will choose to um, have laboratories and tinker. Generally not as successful under a corporate umbrella, although Google seems to have done it very, very well. Um, some keep an eye on the market and buy in. Um, Kodak is a, a real good example of a company that missed the boat. Um, another one is Xerox, and they're, they're kind of fascinating because they're Park Labs. So many great, great innovations came out of there. The, the user interface, the mouse, the printer. So Xerox single-handedly created Apple, Microsoft, mm -hmm. Hugo Packard, no, I'm sorry, um, Intel, pardon me. It's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. So they had the right strategy of developing the technology. They fell short on commercializing it. Wow. So it, it's a tough thing to align the strategy and the execution of it, and it's the rare person who can do both. I was just going to say digital, too, right? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I saw that firsthand. The, actually, the, at digital, um, David Cutler developed this cutting-edge operating system, and internally, people didn't want it. It really threatened the cash cow, so he went on to Microsoft, and he created their NT operating system and, and became the big thing there. I think the important thing there, by the way, is uh, if there is these big things that you see within your company, 
you know, I always tell um, a lot. Of, a lot of people come to me and ask me for advice about what do I do about this? My company, you know, there's this great. I, I think we should be moving toward this. A lot of times, my advice is go to the other company. Go to a company where they're doing the work that you want to be doing, right? Rather than trying to convince everyone in your group somehow that's a great idea. It's really not worth your time, honestly, and probably you know not in your pay grade to really be focusing your energy on that, right? If the entire team is against you, then maybe find the team that's not, right? That's you know more work initially, but in the long run, like the difference is that you have to fight every step along the way versus maybe, you know, making that initial shift to a different company where they'll actually support the things that you're doing and, you know, probably help you in actually achieving those things. Right. I think if there were, if somebody would have done a study that identified the capacity of the CEOs of some of these companies that failed, they would find that the, that the, the CEO at the time really did not have the breadth of capacity to see the opportunities of doing things differently. So, you know, you can protect a cash cow, but you can also develop a whole other um, unit or division or product suite. Um, and I think that it's, it becomes very, very important to uh, think about um, who is at the top and whether the person at the top is, is really the person that is going to bring the, the company to its next level, keep it where it is, or in some cases, diminish it. Uh, it really has a great deal to do with who the CEO is. Okay, well, thank you very much. Um, a round of applause for our panelists for lots of insights and uh, shared knowledge. So. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us.